if gender is fixed because God designed it that way as part of nature, then we get to find freedom within those boundaries. Do you want to to, to continue this theological discussion in a car or in a jailhouse room with cops? How does power relate to our sexuality? And how does our sexuality relate to our identity? In many ways, those questions are fundamental to how we think about and engage in the culture wars in our time. As conscientious objectors to the culture wars here at Everything Just Changed, we are trying to find an alternative way to navigate and discuss these important and yet very contentious issues. A way that is generous, that is grounded in grace, and doesn't involve condemning those that we disagree with. Today we're talking with Jim Pachta about his own story and the way that sexuality has been central in both his life and his work. Stay with us. Welcome to Everything Just Changed, where we envision a post-culture war church and equip leaders who just can't even anymore. So if you're just joining us, we have been in a series, having a series of conversations about power. The topic of power seems like it has erupted onto the scene in the last couple of years, and it's a topic, uh, it's not a topic that we tend to think about, much less deal with in the church. And as we've seen the abuse of power exposed both in the church and in our culture more broadly, we've wanted to understand the nature of power and what it looks like to try to steward the power that we have and think about power in light of who Jesus is. And so we've had a number of conversations about power over the last couple of months here on Everything Just Changed. And we actually thought we were done, but I I sort of made the mistake a couple of weeks ago of asking the question, what did we miss? Let us know. And several of you responded. uh, So thank you for that. And so we've added a couple more conversations. And so today we're talking with Jim Pachta, about power and sexuality. Jim is a counselor in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas and an elder in his church. And Jim, we are really excited to talk with you today. Thanks so much for joining us. No, this is exciting. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. So Jim, uh, we're talking about power and sexuality, and often I think we can approach this in an abstract way that misses the reality that we're talking about real people with stories and, and, and often very difficult stories when we're talking about sexuality. And so would you start us off by sharing your own story with us? Sure, sure. I was, uh, I was raised in Cleveland, Ohio, in a very large family of adopted, foster, and biological children. My parents were informed they were not able to have their have uh, children biologically and so I was the first adopted then other adoptees came along and then they brought in some foster children and then um, were surprised by having two biological children Mm. we were a menagerie we were a group of children that were in an extremely dysfunctional family. It was, uh, it was a violent family. My father was uh, um, a violent alcoholic. 
and it was not a good situation for a young boy to grow up in. I had six sisters, and from as early as I can remember, I was the proverbial girl in a boy's body. Mm. He was a tough ex-army, macho, brusque Mm. man, and he let me know at every turn I did not have what it took to be a boy. Mm-hmm. I was uh, I was his shame, and that's how I grew up with a a shame based sense of identity. I looked at other boys as having something I did not possess, and it was not long through the years that that uh, I want to be like them turned into I want to be liked by them. Um, I was gay and I was transgender. I remember telling my dad when I was about 14 that I thought I was gay, although in my own mind, there was no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. And he regaled me with stories of his gay bashing youth where he would, uh, in downtown Cleveland at his job, um, lure gay men into public restrooms and beat the tar out of them and flush their heads in the toilet. And the laugh I can still hear ringing in my ears, the laugh that he had as he told me these tales um, to shame me out of my um, belief that I might be gay. He said, you're not one of them faggots, are you? You're not one of those queers, can you be? And of course I denied it, of course not, no, not me, not me. And that was when I was 14. When I was 15, I was kicked out of my home. I left Ohio at uh, the age of 18, having been fired from three jobs already, and joined the Navy, thinking that would get me out of town. I moved to sunny San Diego, paradise, where the gay community was in full swing. Um, it was the disco era and gay discos were all the rage. And I felt like I had come home. I was pretty out as uh, up to that point, but now I was flamboyantly out. I was, uh, I was, uh, extreme in my, um, homosexuality and transgenderism. I was cross-dressing. I was on the street. I had a partner um, even while I was in the Navy. I had come to faith a year previously um, to back up just a little bit. Mm. Um, I I didn't like being gay. I didn't want to be gay. I was tired of the shame. I was tired of the the poking fun. I was tired of being humiliated. And if I could uh, um, avoid all that, I was going to do it. So I heard the gospel. I believed the gospel, and through this group of extreme charismatic Christians, I was also told that I had lost the gospel, that I had lost my salvation because of my being gay. I thought easy come, easy go, and joined the Navy and went off to San Diego, where I entered that life with abandon. Part of it just to get back at God, 
I was so angry. After I was in the Navy for about a year, going to the go, getting involved in the in the bar scene, I met a, a young man who was going door to door at the barracks where I would change clothes before I would go back to my home, and he was uh, going door to door with other what they called themselves navigators. They were sharing the gospel as they were going along. And he uh, wanted to talk to me about my spiritual life. I said, yeah, I've already been down that road. Thanks, but no thanks. I, I tried that. It didn't work. I've lost my salvation, but uh, go on and share it with somebody, uh, somebody else. He said, well, that's not true. You can't lose it. He said, yes, you can. He said, no, you can't. So we argued for a while. He said, why don't we do this? Why don't we get together every morning and have what he was going to call a quiet time? And why don't we get together and study the Bible together? So I thought about it for a minute. He was 6'5", blonde, blue, built. Bible study? Sure, why not? (laughs) I was intrigued. So Tom and I became fast friends and he started discipling me. And we uh we started meeting together every morning. But this time I was uh not going to make the same mistake. I was not going to let him know about my other life, my partner, my homosexuality, my transgender. I was not going to tell him any of that. Mm. So that began my living a double life extraordinary mm. I, I was living the perfect double life i would meet with him in the morning he would go off to his work i was a baker and a cook in the navy i worked all night long i would meet with him and i would go back into town after a while that really started to get to me god started to really do a work on me the spirit really started to convict me of my sin and after a few years of this, I finally decided, okay, what I need to do is I need to leave the life and I need to follow Christ and I need to, to sell out. Actually, what I need to do is I need to get married. That's what would help me. God would honor her hmm. and I would get the blessing. Hmm. So I went on a Westpac cruise, went to the Philippines, met a young woman from Indiana working over there with the Department of Defense. She was a Christian woman. She was a good girl, dated her a little bit. Then I proposed. She said yes, and we got married. I did not tell her either Mm. any of my story. Mm, Man. We moved to Dallas. I went to Dallas Bible College, a hyper-dispensationalist, very legalistic college, a subsidiary of Dallas Theological Seminary, where I proceeded to fail out. Mm. My last classes that I failed were psychology and marriage and family. <laughs> God. <laughs> oh, the irony. Humor. <laughs> we got pregnant after a, after a year, and we lost our daughter. Mm. And I thought, nothing is going to please this God. I did everything I was supposed to. In Mm. 77, this was in 1980, in 77, I got baptized by a well-known evangelical preacher. 
who told me, fake it until you make it. And that's what I was doing. I was doing the best that I could. Nothing I could do could please this, this God who, ironically enough, looked just like my father. When he showed up, he was angry at me about something. Uh. So we started a ministry to gays and lesbians. I was white knuckling it. I was trying as hard as I could. I finally told my wife, it devastated her, but we, we did the best we could to work through it. A pastor came and kind of took me under his wing. And we started this ministry in Dallas to gays and lesbians. It was an ex-gay ministry. I was teaching other gays and lesbians how to fake it until you make it. And I did that. I was 24 years old. I had no business doing ministry. I had no business doing anything concerning being gay or transgender. I had dealt with nothing in my life, the wounds and the trauma of my own upbringing. By the time I was in my late 20s, the depression, the pressure was too much to bear, and I fell. And it destroyed the ministry. It, it destroyed me, almost destroyed my marriage. Mm. Walked away from the ministry. I walked away from the church, and eventually I walked away from the Lord. Went back to school for a while, got involved in theater. I was an actor, a director here in Dallas. I got more and more depressed. It got to the point where the anxiety was so intense, I couldn't even lose, leave my house. I was depressed, agoraphobic. I ballooned up to 400 pounds. I was smoking two packs of Marlboro a day. It was, I, I was addicted to pornography. It was awful. It was terrible. My wife was gone at a conference. My sons, who I had three, were teenagers at this point and when they were asleep while I was writing my suicide note my wife walked in the door early from her conference again God in his timing and humor it was a grief conference and she started talking to me about the 20 things she had written down that I had never grieved in my in my life oh so I put away my suicide note, I put away the razor blades, and we started talking about the blessing in mourning. Saved my life that night, and I've been grieving and finding blessing in mourning ever since. Little by little, God started putting our lives back together again, started going back to church, started back in scripture, started worshiping, started understanding how the character of God is that he is a good father who doesn't give bad gifts to his children. He wasn't out to get me. He was out to get me back. 20 years ago, then we started going to a little Presbyterian church in East Dallas, where we still are. And eight years ago, I actually became an elder of that same place. I started getting back into doing counseling again, but this time for the right reason, not to help people white knuckle it, but to help people find Jesus and worship and let their worship inform their walk and their work. And that's where I've ended up today. Wow. Wow. What a story. I've heard, uh, bits and pieces, but I haven't heard the whole thing. And thanks for sharing that with us. 
So yeah, I'm just struck by how much your story, both geographically and in terms of timeline, is uh, it, it. I don't know that I've ever heard a story on any given topic that has so revolved around the key times and places hmm. of that topic, like what you just outlined. I mean, the ex-gay movement and reparative therapy and um, the Southern California in the 70s. Like, I'm just, I, I, there is no question here, by the way. It's, I just, I'm just kind of in awe of how, and, and would love to, I just want to point out just how ridiculously and relentlessly God has like been with you in really unfathomably difficult times and places so thank you yes. yeah thank you yeah. yes <laughs> oh yes thank you for the opportunity to share it jim i wanted to kind of ask you about the relationship between scripture and experience and i feel like it's even more poignant having just heard you describe uh you know your story because some people would hear what you just described and 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 Gosh, I don't know if this is if this feels somewhat inappropriate for me to even say, but some people would suggest the reason you're depressed is because you're trying to live up to a standard that is being imposed on you, that it isn't isn't actually authentic to who you are and what you and who you're, you know, your authentic self, right? And right. and so how have you thought about the relationship between uh, scripture and and your experience or what the bible teaches and what our what our culture says is is good they'd be right i was trying to live up to a, a bar i could never reach i was trying to be sinless temptationless perfect i was trying so hard to be all these things that man that told me, fake it until you make it. That pastor that took me under his wings finally said, I think you need to be exercised of demons. Mm -hmm. When I first went to my, my, the church that I'm in now, a man who would eventually become an elder at another church um, was talking to a group of people. When I first got there, he was talking about those faggots that are taking over the country. Every turn, I ran into this, this wall that said, you're not good enough. You don't belong. So I tried harder, and I tried harder, and I tried harder. Back in the 70s, there was a book. The book wasn't any good, but the title was interesting. It is, uh, you're okay. I'm okay. You're okay. I'm, I've just finished writing a book. I want to get published. But the working title of it was, I'm not okay. You're not okay. And that's okay. <laughs> I like that. That's the bar I can reach. I'm a hmm. mess. <laughs> I am a royal mess. And that's okay. God loves me where I am while he doesn't accept me as I am because he wants more for me. I don't have to try to be perfect. Moral perfection is not a fruit of the spirit. And the rest that I now find in being 
a redeemed and redeeming mess is so incredible and so freeing. I have nothing to prove, hmm. nothing to gain by trying to prove it. That's a game changer. It is a game changer. I can't think of a topic that has, that has, is more fraught with, to quote, ancient church father, theologian, Inigo Montoya, um, <laughs> that word does not mean what you think it means, right? And there, this, this, is made, this is an already, as you just demonstrated, a profoundly personal and not armchair quarterback conversation. It feels that much more hampered and made difficult by the fact that we're using a lot of words in ways uh, very differently. And so I, in my own, just kind of like, as, I, as I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm hearing uh, different categories or dimensions of this that relate to orientation and experience versus kind of the message and meaning that that communicates into identity. Um, and something about like, biblically speaking, sex is a profoundly deep identity forming, shaping thing. That's part of why it's talked about a lot in scripture. Um, so can you maybe just kind of maybe define these terms and, and, and help us understand like, okay, what is identity? How is that different from orientation? And, and, and maybe apply that a little bit, map it onto your story a little bit in terms of how you've wrestled, especially with those two different kind of aspects of this? It's a great question. And where I am right now, this is where I am landing. I'm, I'm not sure orientation is a biblical category I'm comfortable with. Okay. I'm, I'm a, sure. I, so I'm a, I'm a little different than what you might hear from a lot of people in my of my ilk. I love and respect many of them, but I'm not sure I'm comfortable with orientation because it's it, it's a loosey-goosey word to me. I mean, it, if it means what you're born with or what you what you're fixed with or what you're stuck with, I, I don't know what it means. So I'm not comfortable with the category. I my goal is never to be heterosexual. I tried that. That I don't know what that I, I don't know how to do that. My goal is not to be homosexual. That doesn't work either. My goal is to be Linda sexual. <laughs> Linda is my wife. I like that. That's good. If I'm going to be oriented, I'm going to be oriented toward her. That's mm. where that's where God, what God has joined together. That's where I'm going to orient myself. That's where he has oriented me. That's natural for me now. That, that's where I'm going to move. The deepest part of who we are, I believe, is our gender. Larry Crabb, who heavily influenced me back in the 80s, Larry Crabb and Dan Allender used to work together, and I hmm. spent a lot of time, spent a lot of time with both of them. Larry Crabb used to ask the question, when are you, where are you the most masculine? And where are you the most spiritual? And the answer to both of those questions is the same answer. I am gendered male as a spiritual person because that's where I get to reflect Trinitarian glory. 
my maleness and my spirituality as I move, my gender informs my sexuality. That's the deepest part of who I am. So, so when I fall in short of the glory of God, I have fallen short primarily in my gender, which influences every other part of my life. Can you, can you unpack that a bit? Because I, I, on yes. the surface, I'm like, I mean, that sounds good. Uh, but like, how does that change the conversation in terms of how we typically have that? Um, beyond, I mean, at first blush, my, my, my reaction is, well, it, it's, it is at least the difference between something that is kind of, um, kind of transcendentally defined instead of really culturally or subjectively defined. But I'm having a hard time getting handholds on like, what are the implications there? Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. So male and female created he them to be as the image of God. We image God, therefore, in our gender. The words are Zachar and Nekimah, right? We, we, as one flesh, we reflect Trinitarian glory. The two in one reflect the three in one. And that's how I see it now. Mm-hmm. Now, my gender then, that deep core part of me is where I move into my world as a male. Now, again, I think the Bible is more descriptive than prescriptive. Mm. One of my problems growing up was I was art- I'm an artist, I'm a musician, I'm sensitive, I'm tender. My father mm. was none of those eat your peas that'll put hair on your chest he said to a four-year-old who is going i don't know that i want hair on my chest <laughs> also peas are nasty and he said well i like yeah. you still oh. but, you know <laughs> no judgment i just yeah that's right. not gonna work for me yeah right right but it's 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 uh it was so I mean, he was so hard on me and I didn't like hunting. One time he went hunting and brought home a rabbit and I went out into the backyard and gave it a proper Christian burial. I think I was seven. (laughs) He was not amused. (laughs) Right. So I had this tender heart and didn't know what to do with me in his context. But underneath it all, I was still male, but my perception was now guiding my direction away from what God had designed me to be. Once I believed the truth, the spirit brought me into the truth. Now I'm allowed to be the man that God designed me to be. Okay. So I'm, I'm trying, this is really fascinating. And I, yeah. Um, it sounds like what you're saying, okay, gender, not sexuality is who I am most deeply. And so I'm thinking of all sorts of connections. One, um, it seems like that has vast implications for the maleness and celibacy of Jesus as a, as a human being. Um, yes. But also, I mean, your, your statement earlier about um, just misgivings around orientation and and gender is tied to biology and orientation yeah. is is a far more subjective experience is is that sort of is that sort of I don't distinction know what that you're orientation getting at? is yeah I, what i'm saying is i'm not sure what orientation is or means from a biblical point of view um i don't i don't 
I, I don't know what that means. Is it something we're born with? Is it something, you know, all I know is that gender is fixed. Mm. Gender is binary. Right. What, what I see happening out there is, you know, personality is fixed. You're extrovert or you're introvert and you're social and you're non-social. You're, you know, personality seems to be fixed mm-hmm. and gender gets to be fluid. I see it the other way around. I see gender is fixed and personality is fluid. And, um, and, and so if gender is fixed because God designed it that way as part of nature, then we get to find freedom within those boundaries. Interesting. So I've got two, que- two questions come to mind as you're describing that. So it sounds like because you, you referred to yourself uh, as in the beginning parts of your story as transgender. Uh, are you saying I then used then, to be transgender? What, I'm sorry, what? I used to be transgender. Oh, yes. you, okay. So, so would you say then? Just I'm just trying to if this implication is the shoe doesn't fit. Um, but by that, do you mean like you used to consider yourself? or used to be transgender because you were understanding maleness in the definition that your dad gave you. And for that reason, you were experiencing this kind of like existential crisis, but as you, and so as you kind of accepted the, that like objectively you are a male, your sex is male, right? Then that means that your gender is actually just whatever whoever you happen to be as god created you is that yes i was because i was understanding that if my father was male i must be something other than what my father is because i didn't measure up so i was identifying maleness traditionally or socially or culturally as a young boy I was wrong Hmm. because I believe that SSA or and transgender is sin formed because we're born blind because of sin, sin formed and it's shame based. Hmm. Okay. It, it, It is. I don't have what it takes. I'm less than what I'm supposed to be. It's also functional in that it reinforces if I'm, if I don't have, if I've got nothing, you get nothing. If I don't have what it takes, then I I can quit trying to be masculine or male. And it was just easier to be a girl. My Mm. sisters were allowed to dance. They were allowed to play house. They were allowed to play with dolls. I wanted to do all of that. But as a boy, I wasn't allowed. But if I were a girl, I was allowed. They could do their hair up. They could wear jeans. They could wear dresses. I wanted the freedom. I felt cheated as a boy. I was creative and I wanted the freedom that they had. But so by inwardly seeing myself as a girl, I felt like I had more freedom. Now as a man who is created because Jesus as the perfect man was, was an artist. He was a storyteller and an artisan as a a carpenter, 
right? He had, he was relational. He was intimate. He was, he, he found, saw beauty. He was a creator. He had all those great qualities. As a man, I'm allowed to have those things. Now that's what's descriptive, not prescriptive. That's helpful. So Jim, I'm wondering then kind of thinking back to the question I'm asking about scripture versus experience. And again, I'm asking here, not putting words in your mouth, but I'm wondering if 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 part of what you're saying then is that um, scripture actually is sort of has this um, the effect of sort of bringing sanity into into some of that confusion. Um, uh, yeah, because so much of the um, I think so much of the cultural conversation is you're you're if you're trying to live up to this biblical standard that doesn't fit and if you just get rid of the biblical standard then you're going to experience so much more freedom but it's it sounds like what you're saying is actually i could understand who i was in terms of my gender when the light of scripture began to actually shine on my experience well said exactly romans 12 1 the mercy of God, he says, mm. by the mercies of God, present your body mm. as a living sacrifice. Mm. This is this is freedom. It is the mercy of God. It's not the law of God. It's not the toughness of God. It's not the demands of God. It's the mercy of God allows us, lets us sacrifice ourselves as reasonable, logical worship. In other words, I could I could die to my right to find comfort in my quote femininity, like I knew what feminine was. Mm. It was a male interpretation of mm. a female. But I could die to my right to be female and be the man he designed me to be. His mercy let me in on that as worship, as an act of worship. And within those boundaries, I was allowed to then flourish and have, I have no desire to be female today. I, I mean, it is a foreign concept to me today. Hmm. Wow. That's, that is, that's, that's so, so <laughs> what you just described in many ways, like you're, you're, you're verging into that category of identity, especially when we think about that in a descriptive sense of like identity being that dimension that is uh, self-understanding and self-perception. How you see yourself is is in a sense a at least lowercase i identity, right? Like I, I'm a husband, I am a father. Those are identities, lowercase i, um, but they shouldn't be the ultimate source of dignity, value, and worth for me. And what, what I'm hearing you say is that like the, the gift and the grace of that dignity, value, and worth being given to you, even though there is a very kind of uh, clear, definitive, uh, descriptive, and prescriptive uh, authority of the Bible, it's actually significantly bigger than the cultural definitions that have been handed to you. Uh, so can you, can, can you help us like maybe talk about how 
the, the, just the word identity and also the concept of it and how our self-perception is actually how we want to find our dignity, value, and worth. And like, how, where are the implications in terms of our sexuality? How do we understand what it's like to navigate that, especially faithfully as Christians? Well, identity is a tricky wicket, isn't it? It, 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 it I, I like how y'all have described it. It's not something we achieve. It's something we receive. I see identity my early childhood, right? It was what, what can I get to make me who I'm comfortable being? And so my whole life struggle then became, if I can get respect from these boys, love from these boys, mm. if I can get um, sex from these boys, I've had sex, I mean, the numbers I, I've lost count. I don't even couldn't even count the number of men that I've been involved with because I'm looking for something. Give me, give me, give me. Mm -hmm. And I lost my identity with each one. I lost a sense of myself. But I believe that our spiritual gifts, our sense of identity are in direct relationship to the sanctification of our suffering and, and our shame and our sorrow that god that's how god redeems our story and he gives us a sense of self as we give ourselves away not as we take from others but as we give our, ourselves away so the more i see myself as male and i give myself to others for their benefit at my expense which is the opposite of lust mm -hmm. taking from others at, for my benefit at their expense, as I give rather than take, I find myself. But but that's, Bryce, what you were asking before about the Bible. If I seek to salvage my psyche, if I seek to save my life, I will lose it. But if I lose my life for his sake, mm. I will find it. Mm. The word life is a word psyche. It has to do with a sense of being, that sense of identity. So let me ask what I think will probably like if I, I like I'm trying to listen with the the lens and filter of of my neighbors, right? And mm -hmm. a lot of many friends of mine who are um LGBTQ in, in both actively in that community and or how they would use the word orientation. Um yes, and I, I would say like what you're describing uh, sounds exactly like the experience of some of them um, yes. in, in their monogamous, whether they consider themselves in a committed partnership or uh, a marriage legally or otherwise defined. Like what, what about those people whose experiences was not like yours in terms of that loss of identity, but actually a, a finding and a, a satisfaction or a contentment? Like, how, how would you respond to that objection? Yes. Well, truth isn't based on experience. It can't be. It mm. just can't be. Uh, the locus of our identity, the locus of our truth is found in Genesis 1 and 2. According to Romans 1, we are designed primarily to reflect God. We are the Imago Dei, the image of God, and our identity, or whatever you want to call it, 
our being is to reflect his character and nature. All that is known about God has been made evident through that which has been made, the book of nature and the book of scripture, general and specific and special revelation. And my experience can lie to me. My experience can make me feel good. I know how to go out of here and feel great in my sin. I'm still tempted with SSF. Make no mistake. I, I, and I'm tempted to gossip. And I'm tempted to lie. Mm. And I'm tempted to, to, to overeat. I weighed 400 pounds. I, mm. I'm, I, I'm still tempted to, to do all kinds of... I mean, these are just a few of my favorite things. <laughs> I, I mean, I have, I've got all kinds of temptations, but I don't need to be defined by them. Mm, mm. Right. I'm, I, I, I believe in the Westminster's first question. I want to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Mm. That's how I look at it. Jim, this, this conversation is, um, is just so fascinating to me because part i feel like what i'm what i'm hearing you say there's like an open handedness in the way that you're having that we're having this entire conversation and you know when i think about the church i think it's inarguable that the church has significantly contributed to our reputation of you know not welcoming sexual minorities i mean you've you've uh, shared a couple just chapters in your own story of let's just say Christians with um, misguided attempts mm. to, to try to navigate the issue of, of sexuality and homosexuality. It feels like so much of the time to, at the risk of like oversimplifying that the church's response to homosexuality is just don't. Right. <laughs> and, and you're talking about this with an open handedness. You're, you're getting to the same place, right? God has created us as men and women. Help, help, help me think about like, how, how do we begin to navigate this in a more helpful way, in a more yeah. productive way in, in our, in the context of our churches? Yes. There are, because, there are still many in, well, the PCA that have come right out and said, I should not be an elder. I should not be leading, right? I get, I, I should not be preaching the word from the pulpit because I still struggle with same-sex attraction. Hmm. I, that makes me very sad. I welcome and warmly welcome people who struggle with same-sex attraction or being transgender. Um, I, I embrace them. I want them to come to our congregation. Um, there is hope. God wants us to flourish. Sexuality is more than what happens in the bedroom. It's what happens in the boardroom. It's as we move into our world with power and purpose, stemming from the gender that he designed to uh, excite and delight. Mm. And we get stuck because we want more than what God has, has, has designed um, that, is, that is good for us. So the gospel, the good news is 
the power of God. The dunamis. We get the word mm-hmm. dynamic. God comes across yeah. as pursuer. God pursues us towards salvation. That's what Romans 1.16 means to me. It's, that's the good news. He pursues all that he gave over to their sin. He now pursues. He, he doesn't want to just get back at them. He wants to get them back. And that's his power. And now he's not given us the spirit of fear, but of the same thing, dunamis, that power, that dynamic, the way we get to come across in love to those same people. Mm. We get the same thing that God has, we get to have, to embrace those sinners. My wife was the Pharisee. I'm not speaking out of turn. She (laughs) has given me permission. (laughs) My wife was a legalist. I was the black sheep. She was the good girl. She grew up in a church that believed in the law. And she was a good girl. And God was lucky to have her in the kingdom. Hmm. Until I began to repent and grow and flourish in my gender and sexuality and move toward her. And she got really convicted that Jesus would have been spending time with my people, not hers. Mm. And that softened her hard heart. Mm. That gave her life. And she realized that she needed repentance as much as I did. Repentance is a gift. She received that gift. It's funny. Like, I I thought I was was at least familiar with uh, how this kind of conversation would go before (laughs) the, the conversation started. Um, and, and I think it's, it's, it's interesting to me because you are, you're articulating very familiar content and categories, but there's something about the, your starting point and also the perspective that you have, that's kind of throwing me for a loop, (laughs) like, uh, and, and it's, it's causing me to like rethink and kind of, and I don't even, I don't even know what it is, except like, it sounds like wisdom. Uh, but. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think about this, especially in terms of this relationship again, between identity and power, because in our culture right now, and and this is, this is by the way, not limited to the left or the right or this topic specifically, but identity has almost become this kind of trump card that you can't critique. You can't, and you, and it, it becomes weaponized in a way that is, um, that is that is not persuading anybody. We'll put it that way, right? Um, and so, when you were thinking about this in terms of the relationship between our, you know, gender or sexual identity and power, what does it look like to like maybe maybe start here? Why why are we using identity of all things to, to as a leverage? Like why why has that become in our culture the thing that we use to self protect? or to, to win, um, like what the hell is going on? Because there is something that is both like really understandable about how sexuality would be like, it's, 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 it's profoundly personal, but also, oh my God, like you can't pick a more vulnerable thing to use against somebody. Like how, what, what I, I'm just like, I want you to take this perspective that I just am, am spinning around in. And can you apply that to that question? Help me understand. Yes. Yeah, that, and that that's really the crux. That's 
well said and 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 the crux of the issue i see power as the ability to affect movement in individuals community and culture power dunamis mm-hmm. dynamic the ability to affect movement that's what god does as the as for salvation that's the good news that's what we do in love and get a sound mind out of it because i see that as sequential when in timothy as he told timothy um identity when i have an identity and i claim my identity i put in my flag it is easy to be victimized And remember what I said about shame. If I am a victim, now I'm going to be very careful here, but if I am a victim that gives me the self-justification to get back at others. Mm. Now, I've been victimized. Yeah, I've got got to finish that because I've been victimized. But if my identity is bound up in being a victim, then I I have self-justification on my side to run and hide, to get back at others, or to cover up and prove myself. Fear, anger, guilt. I've I've got it all covered. Otherwise, I get to be experience on an existential level, my victimization and deal with that appropriately. But if I claim identity as victim, then you can't touch that. That's power. And I can't think, I don't think I've ever been as struck by, as I am right now, by the realization that that is the that is the response of a culture that has given up hope of their wounds and experience as a victim ever having any other redemptive purpose except to be invulnerable and or prevent it from ever happening again. Like, that is so tragic. It is. It is hell. It is hell. And when God is giving over a culture or the church or a person, or when God gives over, he gives over to absolute powerlessness so that he can then take them back and give them his power. So I think it's very both the underlying kind of individualism of our culture that you just described, as well as the specific uh, aspect of the way that we see sexuality and treat that and weaponize it or not, you know, like all of that, like there's no way that we can uh, avoid the reality of how much the church has contributed to that reality. Because if if that is a gospel-less, hopeless, graceless, response or or a response of a hopeless graceless gospelless people that's coming from within the church too and that is that that feels damning to me and so can you just maybe talk a little bit about like where what do we what are we fundamentally misunderstanding or misbelieving about the gospel 
that is has led us to this point and how should we like respond differently as the church like how do we have this conversation in a way that skips the culture war pardon my french bullshit and gets to the actual the the, the tragic hopelessness and the wounds and and victim experiences that are that are actually fueling that how do we just how do we what are we doing wrong how do we get there oh there yes i'm so glad you got there uh, that that's that's so vital when jesus when jesus said to the pharisees you look great on the outside you're whitewashed beautiful on the outside but inside you're dead you're mm. whitewashed sepulchers and when you're dead on the inside you're dangerous to others you are you are a a a um what is it snakes uh vipers the brood of vipers and when you're dangerous to others you're demonic you're from another kingdom you're dead dangerous and demonic that's what evangelicalism has become to many of us it looks good but it's scary it's dangerous and it's demonic which is why jesus said to peter satan get behind me yeah because he wanted a different kingdom instead of the upside down power supply that jesus was offering die to yourself and love others i mean you're hitting the nail on the head of uh, i have a friend of mine who's a who's a christian and same-sex attracted and i in 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 my trying to encourage him something that like one of those like holy spirit like i don't know where i came from it just came out of my mouth and i like i've been i think about this all the time and i i tried to encourage him by saying like man i will never know especially in this modern kind of culture i will never have to pay the cost of death to self as much as you do and also like in a way that like to be to be a christian it, it forces you to like you don't you don't get that freedom as an option as a christian um and but i also am sad that i will that i'm going to miss out on this side of heaven of understanding and tasting and seeing the goodness of god in a way that is in is in opposite and direct proportion to that to that death to self mm. that's the alive in christ part right mm. and and i i um i think about that a lot and how badly actually the church needs that testimony within our walls, within the body, because, oh my God, Amen. Where, yes. where, where, yeah. there's, there's very little in the world. Uh, there's nothing else in the world that's actually saying like death to self is going to flourish anybody. And we need, we actually need to see it in a lot of ways for us to actually believe that that's true. Unless the grain of wheat falls to the ground and abides all oh. by itself. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I'm experiencing much fruit. I have a congregation who loves me and I love them. They are beautiful and warm and welcoming. And I have dear, deep relationships mm. with men who are not afraid to embrace me physically, literally. Mm. Right. I remember the first time a pastor actually hugged me in the middle of a restaurant. And I thought, and I'm and I'm wearing a frilly shirt and bandanas and dressed to the nines. And I thought, 
oh man, everybody's going to think he's a queer. And he loved me. Um, mm. He loved me anyway. Oh. Mm. Mm. So unless we understand when my wife came home that night and she walked through the door as I'm getting ready to kill myself. And she told me, you need to grieve the loss of that community. All those friends I said, no, no, no. It was sin. It was evil. It was wicked. She goes, they were yours. Mm. I walked away from a house and, 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 and friends and, and, quote, family and wealth. And I walked away from it all with nothing but a car and a broken iron in my trunk to get mm. married to a woman I did not love because it was, quote, the right thing to do. It's almost like we've been trying to get people to believe the gospel without the family of the church. And it's really hard to believe the gospel then. Yeah. If yeah. there isn't a family that's that 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 is there for us in the midst of and despite the broken families we're coming from. Yes. Yeah. So so Jim, um, I wonder if maybe you can connect some of the dots because I feel like a, a lot of what we're hearing is is sort of the I want to I almost feel like the shadow side here. But can you talk to us about how? the gospel kind of uniquely enables us to answer, uh, navigate just the complexity of these issues and the, and the goodness of the gospel and what, and the gospel is being set free for life. Yes. The gospel is about a redemption, a, a narrative of redemption that God is going to pursue you and love you and build you and be with you. He's going to show up for you, not take away your temptation. That's not it. That's not about it. It's not about it. He's going to be there for you in the midst of it and reveal himself to you. Right? When my goal stopped being, I've got to stop sinning. I've got to stop being tempted. And I get to know Jesus and the glories and the riches of his grace, when that became my goal and that became the good news, life changed, paradigm shifted. Mm. And then redemption is God giving value to all that story. Mm. I mm. didn't need to forget my story. Mm. Story took over for identity for me right? Story took over. It wasn't, it was redemptive story became my being. So it wasn't a thing. It was a process where when I go into a grocery store and I give the grocer a worthless piece of paper with ink on it, and that grocer gives me something of value in return, that's what God does to our seemingly worthless story. I was a drug dealer. I was a prostitute. I was a drag queen. I was a, I, I, oh, I didn't even like to talk about it. But I do because God has given it value because he says, look what I'm going to do. You stole men's sex from them. You know how he's redeemed mm -hmm. that? I'm giving them back their gender and sex today. 
I'm giving them the journey back to their gender. I'm giving them Jesus and how to embrace their God-given gender and find freedom within those, those boundaries to flourish and find joy, peace, love, freedom. Mm. Considering the context and considering what is against them culturally, that sounds like a hell of a lot of power you have. Mm. Yeah. But it comes out of weakness. When we are weak, God displays his yes. yes. His pursuit. Yes. That's what I live for. Yes. Yes. I've already tried it the other oh. way and it almost killed me. Wow. Jim, this is um this is such a fantastic conversation and we could we could keep talking for hours here. Um I feel like I'm at church. Honestly. We're going <laughs> to um <laughs> We've been 17 we've been, verses just as I am coming up. Now. All right, let's do it. We've been um, ending each of these conversations about power with, with a couple final questions. And so um, I, I want to put the first of those to you. So one of the, the kind of big segments of our audience is uh, pastors. And it, it occurred to me that, especially on this topic, that a lot of parents are probably in the same place too who feel like we're walking through a minefield when it comes to the question of sexuality. And, and maybe that means it's easier to just not talk about it. So how would you, what encouragement would you offer to pastors, especially that find themselves in that place? Don't give in to that temptation of not talking about it. <laughs> Sure. Talk yeah. about it. Talk about it. Talk about it. We need more people talking about it. Number one, hear them without advice. Just hear them. You need to know less than you think you need to know. They'll let you in on what you need to know. Hear them. Number one. Mm hug them number two mm. hug them embrace them let them know again like god did with me i love you where you are even if i can't accept you as you are because i want more for you and more from you mm. but i do love you where you are i want good for you i have hope for you hear them hug them and hold their story with honor hmm. don't don't dismiss that don't say oh no you're not or oh don't talk about that or that's mm -hmm. the gross stuff hold their story with honor and dignity mm -hmm. they are also in the image as the image of god and then help them by walking alongside yeah, uh, that's so um, uh, helpful. Are, are there specific resources that that would be helpful that you could recommend there? Because we know that there are a lot of bad ones, and that's <laughs> part of the problem. Yeah, there are a lot of bad ones. So I was privileged to be part of the committee, the AIC Committee for Human Sexuality for the General Assembly for the PCA. Um, six of us got to write this report on same-sex attraction and transgender issues. 
And I was so honored and so privileged to do that. That can be found at PCAGA.org, that whole report. Mm -hmm. At the very end of that report is a bibliography, a series of books that include Jackie Hill Perry's Gay Girl, Good God. Oh, Mm -hmm. Rachel Gilson's book, Born Again This Way. Yes. Lots of good books like that. Good story. Excellent. Um, yeah, that's great. That we we know that very, not not all of our you know listeners know what the PCA is, probably much less are part of it. But we'll definitely uh, leave a link to that in the good, uh, in good. the show notes here. That that's fantastic, for sure. So the other kind of half of our audience, and and it's it's just it's been a perpetual surprise to Bryce and all and I that like. The, these two groups of people are in many ways have are drawn to this podcast and, and are listening in part because they're trying to figure out if they can be family with each other. Right. Like, and, and they want to be family with each other, but that's kind of scary. Right. And that second group is less pastors and more like, uh, I mean, there's a ton of people <laughs> who, because of the way to varying degrees of, of accuracy, the church has handled this generally. And also the perception is even worse, but it wasn't good in the first place. Right. Um, are, have a real hard time. Um, even if they themselves are not gay or transgender, have a hard time being part of something that would in some way feel alienating to, uh, friends and family who, who love them. I like, I literally talked to, um, a couple of people in our church recently about membership and um, they were really struggling with the idea uh, that their um, same, uh, their same sex attracted like lesbian friends who are in a long-term partnership married, I think um, like that they wouldn't be able to become, you know, members. And it's like, well, it's actually not quite that clean and we'll save the nuance for another day, but like, it's actually, they're like, well, how could we become members of this church then? And, 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 and there's just so many threads there to pull on. But like in terms of just like how to, what would you say to them? How would you encourage them that like actually membership or just like being part of the church is actually a way to love them well? Yeah. Yeah. Um, at some point, well, number one, at some point it may cost us to hold on to beliefs that are biblical. It, it just, it just is. I expect before I retire in three years or however, as a, a as a therapist, I expect I'll lose my license because mm. of the beliefs that I hold. That's that's mm. okay. Um, I won't I won't skip a beat, but I may lose my I may lose my license. Um, and we have lost people from our congregation. It's like if you can't embrace LGBTQIA plus community, then you've lost me. It's like, I, I'm sorry. I hate to see you go. We want to love you. We want to be here for you. We want to pour our lives into your lives. We do, but it's, it's complicated. And parts of it aren't complicated. Mm. Truth in love, grace and truth, right? Mm. Um, 
I think that I think the hardest part as a pastor is just that that gr- the grieving of knowing that the that stance in many ways is a response to real wounds and hurt and a certain degree of like I don't I I I don't actually believe that it's possible to feel loved without that condition. And it's like when we don't believe in a God of conditional love. Right. So it's hard. Yeah. It's yeah. 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 Mm. So we, we love them one at a time, one neighbor at a time, one neighborhood at a time. Wow. Jim, thank you so much. I mean, what a just rich and encouraging conversation on a really hard topic. Thank you so much for sharing not just your your thoughts and perspective, but your your life and your story with us. We really appreciate talking with you today. Oh, well, thank you. It's been an honor. I, I, I am privileged to, to be a part of your broadcast. Thank you. Likewise. All right. So, Bryce, uh, what just changed for you besides everything? Oh, gosh. <laughs> what... What a fascinating conversation um, yeah. that was. Really appreciated his everything <laughs> yeah. about yeah. that conversation. Gosh, okay, so here's here's my takeaway from that conversation. And I feel like I need to um, even just preface this with a warning because this could be taken in, in kind of the wrong way. But what, what Jim was describing about if I have been victimized, right? Now, without getting into, like, of course, that's horrible. That's wrong. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But but I can then hold on to my victimization and it's almost this, this trump card because it gives me power, right? And I feel like that is such a description of the way that the culture wars are playing themselves out in our culture. And yet what a, what a contrast to that way of approaching this subject we just saw. Um, and, and so I just keep coming back to this issue of like, I can't think of a better way to describe Jim's attitude than sort of like hopeful and gospel centered and open-handed because, yeah, because so much of the conversation about sexuality and homosexuality is like, side a side b are you affirming are you not affirming like as pastors we get these emails sometimes through the website right where people are like hey i'm really thinking about your visiting your church but before i do that i need to know how are you going to answer this question yes or no and it's just like it's so frustrating and what what jim just demonstrated for us is this open-handedness but he described power as the ability to affect movement and the way he just described that whole conversation over the last hour, I feel like that is such a picture of what I want power to look like. Mm, yes. Right. Yes. It's not, Hey, this is why you should agree with me. And if you don't, I'm going to crush you because you checked the wrong box. It's God is at work here and he is rewriting my story in a way that is so full of life and hope. And so I can, be open-handed and hopeful about the way he's doing that and the way that I'm interacting with other people in the midst of a really, really difficult conversation. 
in a in a not like open handed is is almost what that conversation felt like a dramatic understatement of like right. like it was radically personally open and vulnerable in ways that like I mean I I've, I haven't had a conversation like this before yeah. right the before I talk about my what just changed I, something you said is really jumping out at me of how you know the way that we use our experience as victims as a trump card like and and just that realization of how that is actually this kind of confession of of hopelessness when we do that mm-hmm. um because it is it is it is mercy that frees us from being defined by our wounds and it's almost like you know when we are when we're thinking about the power dynamics of this uh you're 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 actually giving over power to those wounds in order to weaponize your wounds and that is like so sad to me and what's what's really sad is like we're talking about sexuality but just how much let me, let me just get it this way how much of the often silly persecution complex that we Christians have is actually a sanctified, spiritualized, Christian language, thematic version of that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, like, like there's real persecution, and then there's like, well, no, somebody just doesn't like you. Right. You're not a victim. You might just be a jerk. But you yes, also, like, exactly. even where there is valid social or cultural, maybe even discrimination, man, the the it's fueling our fight in the culture wars. This idea that like, and it's a hopelessness. It's an anti gospel. Like like I finally now understand what what we've talked about, and I was like on an intuitive level. The culture wars are anti Christian. Yes, yes, that is so much of what's happening in this whole like the conservative side of the masking debate. It's you're not a victim mm. because you're being asked to put on a mask to prevent the spread of disease. And I know we're like in a place where everybody's getting rid of the mask mandates, you know, so that applies to like where we were a year ago, but you're not, you're not a victim there. You're not being persecuted. Yeah. You're just asked being asked to like love your neighbors and exercise a little bit of self-restraint. Yeah. So let go of that because it's a silly power play. You're illustrating what we've been saying, what we said earlier in the, in our conversation with Jim, that like we actually need this perspective of what death to self looks like in order for us to understand and actually really believe that mm. it's true and possible. Like yeah. part of the reason why the I think the culture wars have been allowed to perpetuate to the degree and length of time it is, is, is in many ways we've sanitized, mm. like we, we've sanitized the church in ways that have have like robbed us of an immune system to stupidity <laughs> frankly yeah yeah that's good what just changed for you man um so he said something that if we had if we were putting this out on video you would have seen me just like rock back physically in my chair and and he said something along the lines of like a, a, a while ago i exchanged out my identity for story and we've talked a lot about achieved versus received identity and side note really cool to hear that he's been listening <laughs> and and like is familiar with that language um but I th- it was something i've i've wrestled with um just like fully taking the language of identity out of 
the individualism that it's really rooted in and based is is like well there's a there's a communal a part of something bigger dynamic of gospel identity that is is kind of dis, difficult to describe when you're in when your your starting point is individualism right and so when he said story and he changed that for story i was like that's it because identity and the way that we use it right uh, our culturally speaking means like it implies you're the biggest part of your world right story that unless the story's about you that can't be true and we know if we're christians at least the story's about jesus and so that means you're actually a beloved part of a bigger world than you can possibly see hmm. and that's a that is that communicates both the received aspect the grace aspect of identity but also in a way that's like it's not just the same dignity value and worth that is received instead of achieved this puts any achieved dig- dignity value and worth in degree depth or kind just com- to completely to shame because you're there's a huge story and it's not about you but the person who it is about thinks you're freaking amazing mm. and he loves you and it's not because of anything you have to offer it's because he just loves you and he demonstrated that love on the cross and and doesn't is never going to let you go because if he went through all that there's no way that he thinks that you are anything other than worth dying for achieve that yeah you can't you can't achieve that <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is the point yeah amen amen So what just changed for you after listening to this conversation? Let us know in our Facebook group. It's linked in the show notes below. Thanks for joining us. Today is our last interview in this series on power. But Brad and I will be back next week with some reflections on what we've learned. We'd love to hear from you too. What has stood out to you? What have you learned or how have you changed as we've been exploring the topic of power together? Let us know in our Facebook group. Everything Just Changed is edited by Nathan Michelle. Our logo and theme music are by Danny Rankin. I'm Bryce Hales with Brad Edwards. We'll talk to you next week on Everything Just Changed.